10-3 is brought to you by Callaway. Callaway's new Apex irons are the ultimate forged player's distance iron. Unmatched field distance and control have been forged to perfection to deliver category-defining performance. Callaway's 360 face cups generate industry-leading distance and unmatched feel and will get every golfer's attention. Tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch, trajectory, and delivers tremendous control. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit callawaygolf.ca and see what makes Callaway the number one irons in golf. Ontario Premier Doug Ford campaigned on a slogan of For the People. A year in, has he lived up to that promise? I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. We look at how the first year in office has gone, where the Premier has succeeded, and where he has stumbled. Before we get to our conversation, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen. Leave us a rating and a review. Matt Gurney is a columnist with the National Post. So Matt, a year ago, Ontarians decided they'd had enough of Kathleen Wynne's liberal government and hadn't the reins to Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. How would you sum up Ford's first year in office? Well, uh, just as an observer, um, it, it seems to have flown by actually incredibly fast. I'm sure people who've maybe been living it uh, might have it might seem like a lot longer than a year. Uh, for me, though, I mean, I, I spent election night at Liberal Party headquarters, which was a funeral atmosphere to end all funeral atmospheres. There was no doubt among the uh, the worthies gathered at Liberal HQ a year ago about how this election was going to end. The only thing they were trying to do was hang on to official party status. And that had just been this incredible story of the election a year ago, just the sense of, okay, we're going to win this. Oh, okay, no, we're probably not going to win this, but maybe we can hold them to um, a minority. Nope, now we're just fighting for desperate party status. And then ultimately they couldn't even have that. So it was an incredible night a year ago and time seems to have flown by since. The not a ton has changed in terms of, you know, you you might hear about the services Doug Ford is is cutting or his PCs governments have cut. And yeah, I mean, there have been some service impacts uh, for sure. But just in terms of where we stand today, there hasn't really been for, I would say, most of us, the most of the citizens of this province, I wouldn't say there's been a radical change. If you've been directly impacted by one of the cuts, obviously that's a thing. And we can talk about that in a minute because of some of the pushback that Doug Ford has gotten. But thus far, it has been, I, w- I would say, as just an observer, I've been surprised by how little has actually happened. And I'm saying that in a very value-neutral way. I'm not saying I support the changes that have been made or proposed or not. I just would have actually expected more in this first year than what we've actually seen. Well, that was one thing that you got the sense from Doug Ford and his campaign that the PCs were going to come into office and they were going to start making changes right away and undo all of the bad things that Kathleen Wynne had done to Ontario. But one of the things he wrote about recently was the fact that there seems to be a pattern with the Ford government, and that's retreat. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, if to be even more specific, uh, I would say it's a pattern with Doug Ford. And this is something I had noted on Twitter, uh, where I send all my best thoughts. Uh, This was a couple of years ago when Doug Ford was just sort of considering running for PC leader. Uh, The the former PC leader, Patrick Brown, had left office uh, suddenly. uh, You'll you'll remember, and the the listeners will remember, in a a sex scandal. 
uh, that he is always denied. But it was all very sudden and dramatic. And Doug Ford was saying, yeah, I might get into the race. And I remember saying at the time, and I could find the tweet and send it to you to prove it, that one of the problems that Doug Ford has, and he always has, he's had it when he was at Toronto City Hall, he's had it in that in-between period after municipal politics, before he was into provincial politics, and to your question, he's had it in his time in provincial politics, is over-promise and under-deliver. He likes to go out and promise uh, huge accomplishments or even threaten huge accomplishments, huge repercussions. He'll go out and say, you know, we're going to kick butt, we're going to take names, and then he'll pull his punches. And when I was talking about this on Twitter, one of the things I had noted was that uh, after municipal politics, Doug Ford had said, hey, I'm going to write a book, we're going to settle some scores, we're going to name names, we're we're not going to take any prisoners. I was so excited. I was like, this is going to be the best book ever. Like (laughs) we're going to, we're finally going to see Doug Ford fully unchained. This is going to be amazing. Like that restrained and calm Doug Ford. We've all come to know and love is taking a backseat to maximum Doug Ford. The book was boring and it didn't settle scores. It didn't name names. And Doug Ford was called out uh, for this at, at, just after the book came out by one of my colleagues and Doug was like, well, yeah, but my mom didn't want me to you know, be mean to anyone. She appealed to my better nature. And I remember thinking at the time, this is the guy who wants to be the premier of Ontario, where he promises he's going to come in swinging an axe of vengeance and fiscal responsibility. But then his mom says, oh, maybe you shouldn't. And he goes, yeah, maybe you're right. This is like, I was being a little flippant when I was tweeting this a couple of years ago, but it actually has been disturbingly accurate to, to the way he's governed, which what Doug Ford has been doing. And I'll, there's a couple of different examples we could pick, but I'll pick on one that ended up being very tumultuous for the government autism funding. Uh, the liberals, before they had left office, had really had problems with funding autism. In Ontario, they had uh, pledged to do better. They hadn't delivered the parents, these long-suffering poor parents, and my heart absolutely goes out to them, who are trying to uh, navigate the bureaucracy to get their kids the therapy they need. The conservatives came in, said that they would do better, proposed their own plan. It went up like the proverbial lead balloon. Everybody hated it. There, There was almost no one defending the plan. And this is the thing. Doug Ford and his ministers dug in and fought for weeks to defend the plan Mm -hmm. until I guess it became untenable and boom, it's done. White flag, total retreat. We're going to find some way of doing this. Uh, In a a more recent column that that I'd been writing, I'd been noting that this, this is a pattern and this is the worst of both worlds. You absorb all of the damage for digging in and fighting in the face of that opposition. You get called heartless, you get called mean, you get called out of touch. You, You take all of that damage. But then you compound it at the 11th possible hour by basically going, all right, we give up. The government either needs to be tough. It needs to say we were elected to make tough decisions and we're going to have to make some of those tough decisions and it's going to hurt, but this is what we need to do for the greater good. No one would like that, but I think a lot of people would actually respect it. Mm -hmm. They can do that or they can just be better at picking their targets of what they're actually going to dig in on in the first place. Like what they've been doing is accomplishing the maximum amount of outrage and the minimum amount of actual uh, progress or policy renewal. And that, that that's just not sustainable. And I think to their credit, and this is constructive criticism on my part, guys, I honestly think 
they are starting to get that message. And I think it is being delivered to the premier through uh, his ministers and his caucus, just conversations I've had with people who are, are close to the situation. I don't think anyone in the PC party thinks what they've been doing for the last year is sustainable. I think they believe, and I think they're right, at least in part, that they have good news stories they could be telling, but they've just expended so much time and so much energy on so many unnecessary battles. And it might have taken them about a year to figure it out, but I honestly believe, and hey, we, we can talk a year from now and see if I was naive on this <laughs> one, but I honestly think that message is starting to get through. No, do you think that this would account for the fact that the government has seen its popularity fall off? You know, they they rode a wave of support into office and, and especially based off frustration with the win government, but it's recent yeah. polls have seen that it's it's steadily falling off. Is that due to the fact that they're wearing all of these controversies and then caving at the last minute? So they're not getting any positive headlines out of even caving or 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 doing what the people want. I think that's largely it. Yeah. Because actually in terms, I mean, the autism file is, is, it's a definite outlier on this one. And the fact that I think the, the blowback against it was largely warranted. Uh, it, it's a, it's an incredibly complicated file and we, we just don't have the time to actually unpack this issue with the, the focus it deserves, but mm-hmm. it, it probably was an area where the government had really put a foot wrong and had to step back and do better. And I think to their credit, they seem to have eventually realized that some of the other areas though, really haven't been nearly as controversial. And I think for instance, uh, one of the early controversies of the Ford government was the decision to reduce the number of councillors at Toronto City Hall to align the number of council wards with the existing ridings for federal or provincial elections. Mm-hmm. I think that's an imminently sensible thing to do, or at the least, it's a completely legitimate debate to have. But basically, the way it was enacted was to catch the city of Toronto by surprise with no consultation in the middle of the uh, preparatory work for a scheduled election. It was a needlessly disruptive way of accomplishing something that was maybe a, a, a laudable thing, or at the very least, as I said, a defensible one, something that we could have had a real debate about, but we didn't have that real debate. All we fought about was whether or not Doug Ford had a, had a vendetta against City Hall. So I think in situations like that, the effect of the policies, uh, for better or worse, has been largely eclipsed by just the shouting and the screaming and the recriminations. But one other thing you actually noted, and, and you, you noted it in your preamble, but it's completely relevant to this is the issue of the frustration the Ontario voter had with the the win government. And I think, and this is not a criticism of Doug Ford, I don't mean it this way, I mean this in a completely neutral way, I think the Conservatives need to understand that they are in power not because they won the people of Ontario over, but because in large measure they were the next best thing when the decision was made to get rid of the Liberals. And when you look at... Uh, the the excitement, we'll call it, about the resignation of Patrick Brown, who is the former Ontario PC leader. When you had the former leader uh, resign over allegations of sexual misconduct, again, he denied them, but the, those were the allegations. You had the PC party spend a couple of months without a leader. You had a contested bizarrely ended leadership race where Doug Ford actually ended up winning the leadership based on a waiting formula, even though he did not win the popular vote, 
of uh, PC leadership candidates. And then you had all of the drama about needing to come up with a new platform for the party because Doug Ford wanted his own platform. Ultimately, the party didn't even really have a campaign platform in place by the time of the election. They had, if we're being honest here, they had a a brochure. They had a pamphlet of here's some general principles and and a few specific promises. And through this entire process, the PC vote support level barely wavered. You know, it ticked up and down a little bit. There's no way to interpret that other than the fact that the PC vote largely was an anti-liberal placeholder. And I'm not saying that there are no motivated PC members in this province. Of course there are. But Doug Ford and the party got incredibly lucky to have gone through this incredible drama at a period when the voters were actually happy to look at that and go, "Ah, well, we'd still prefer that to the liberals. You can't hope to replicate that. Do you think that the Doug Ford and the Ford government have been too distracted with things like dealing with Toronto City Council or uh, beer in corner stores than they have uh, been focusing on kind of bigger issues in the financial picture of Ontario and and things of that nature? Like, what's the trade-off here with some of these things? You know what? That's actually an interesting question, but let me let me answer it in a slightly different way, right? Because I, I'm a I'm a Toronto guy. I'm I'm a columnist. I write for a newspaper. I'm I'm an intellectual latte sipping elitist, right? <laughs> it's very easy for me to to go all hoity toity and go, oh oh, more beer in corner stores. This is not the real issue. The real issue is this report on the state of Ontario's finances. Every once in a while, I attempt to disconnect from what I do for my day job and just be a normal, reasonably well-adjusted human being again. When I talk to just people who are not in the industry, when I talk to people who are not in the government or kind of the broader public sector, when I talk to people who don't spend way too much of their lives on Twitter the way I do, you want to know what people are actually really talking about? They're happy we're getting beer in corner stores. So it's entirely possible to kind of roll your eyes on the uh, the populist consumerism emphasis of this government, but I think you dismiss it at, at your pearl, uh, particularly if you are a, a critic of, of Ford or maybe even one of his opponents here. Does it get a little bit silly to spend, you know, like day 732 in a row of talking about how great Buck of Beer is? Yeah, maybe. But in terms of the issues that are actually percolating down to the voters, I'm not convinced that this is not one of them. So there might actually be method to the madness of the party there. But overall, to, to, to give your, your entirely legitimate question a more honest answer, there probably has been too much energy and political capital expended on peripheral fights that didn't need to be uh, fought or defending positions that would ultimately be abandoned. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. The question to me is where are we going to be three years from now? Again, maybe I'm naive about this, but I have had a little bit of a sense of late that the government is starting to get their sea legs under them and they're starting to kind of realize we can't keep going the way we've been going. We've got three years until the next election. And I don't need to tell you, man, that the voters in this country have a real short memory. Now, you talk about, you know, the average uh, everyday Ontarian liking something like Buck of Beer or Beer in Corner Stores. What else do you feel that the Ford government has done that's really resonated with those voters or where they've been successful? If I was looking for a success story for the Fords, and this is going to be something that might get me excommunicated from all the better Toronto cocktail parties, but 
I, I do think reducing the size of council is something that a lot of people are going to be happy with. I mean, I honestly believe that it is something that people will uh, look back on and go, what was all the fuss about? What was all the uh, the screaming and the moaning and the groaning about? The city of Toronto, as far as I can tell, and I'm a lifelong Torontonian, born and raised either in the city or just in its immediate suburbs. So Toronto is just when, what I've been plugged into my whole life. I can't notice any appreciable difference. We spent months arguing about something in just incredibly passionate, angry terms that the moment it happened, we just haven't talked about it again. And even though I said just moments ago, I think voters have a short memory, I think they do remember stuff like that. So I think even though you can debate it as policy, I think that the politics of it have worked. In terms, though, of other wins for the government, this, this isn't, I don't say this as a criticism of them, nothing immediately jumps to mind as an early win for this government, if only because in large measure they have been reluctant to make those big changes. I wouldn't say the conservatives have pushed an aggressive policy agenda anywhere. In fact, a lot of the steps they've taken thus far, they've gone out of their way to stress how incremental or non-revolutionary it is. So you've got, there's a weird dichotomy going on in Ontario politics right now, where you have Doug Ford, who likes to present things in his, in his rhetoric, when he's out there talking or stumping, he likes to put things in really dramatic, absolutist terms. It's just his nature. Anyone who's paid any attention to Doug Ford at any point in his career has noticed this about him. The world, according to Doug Ford, is either amazing or horrible. There's not a lot of room in between. But you've got that guy leading a government that in their official positions is actually quite incrementalist and will go out of their way to put any policy proposals. For instance, on education, they'd said, yep, we're going to reduce the size of uh, the, the the teaching workforce by increasing class sizes. So at some of the upper grade levels, we'll have more students per class. That's going to reduce the number of teachers we need. And we're going to accomplish the goal, not by layoffs, but through attrition. Mm -hmm. We're going to just not replace teachers as they retire. That's, again, it's a debatable but reasonable public policy perspective. That's something that you can go, okay, let's talk about this. Let's have a reasonable conversation about that. But what ended up happening was that there was a lot of pushback about from some teachers who were going to lose their jobs, particularly uh, low seniority teachers who'd be first out the door if there was a board coming in uh, with not enough headcount. And the government immediately goes, well, all right, we'll spend an extra $1.6 billion to make sure no teachers lose their job. <laughs> it, it's part of the conversation we already had about retreats in the face of of criticism where they went, well, okay, well, we don't want teachers getting laid off, so we'll spend some extra money to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's also part of how incremental the government is. Like if you're not even prepared to accept and, – and forgive me, all the teachers out there, I, I'm, I'm married to a teacher, so I say this with extreme caution, believe me, but – a few hundred layoffs in a school board that oversees tens of thousands of students in every one of those specific cases is a tragedy. But on the political level, it's basically a rounding error. Mm -hmm. Even so, the government was still really reluctant to actually push ahead with that. You know why? They don't like getting those kinds of headlines. So thus far, what we've seen from this government is a lot of really bright and hot controversy, but on the legislative front, fairly gradual reforms. Matt, thanks very much for your time. Good to be here. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Additional production from Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Matt Gurney. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Listener.